Hello and welcome to Sprogcast, a radio show all about pregnancy, birth and early parenting, hosted by Karen Hall and Mark Harris and supported by Pinter and Martin. I'm Karen Hall and you're listening to episode 10 of Sprogcast, supported by Pinter and Martin. In this episode, we're talking to various hypnobirthing people. We have a new student midwife to chat with and we have all our usual news and views. Better still, we have Mark Harris. Hi, Mark. Hi, Karen. I think we're going to say Happy New Year, even though it's, you know, we're past the most depressing day in January, apparently. That was yesterday. Apparently, because you get paid early for Christmas and then you don't get paid till the end of January. Um, So by the 18th, we've all run out. I am happy to report that I ran out the previous week. So yesterday was fine for me. But uh, Happy New Year to everyone. It's also our kind of anniversary because I didn't we start in January last year. Yeah, we did. Happy birthday. Hey, (laughs) <laughs> do you know i know that the case because my facebook said um that i met you about a year ago oh, isn't that lovely that's i remember our first conversation i remember thinking oh blue now she's very directive <laughs> <laughs> i remember us discussing something and you disagreeing with me and i thought oh that's interesting <laughs> i am um persistent when i know i'm right yeah. that's what pete says ah uh, well pete would know uh, so we had this um, thing in our antenatal class, so we're talking like 10 years ago now, um, where the, the antenatal teachers said, um, as like a kind of close around for one of the sessions, um, say one thing that you would like your baby to inherit from your partner. Well, I said, I would like our baby to inherit Pete's charm. Oh, he's, he's lovely. He's, he's just a really, really lovely bloke. And he said he'd like our baby to inherit Karen's persistence when she knows she's right. <laughs> Can you imagine what kind of a combination that is in a child? <laughs> oh, my God. Be careful what you wish for. Yeah. <laughs> right. First order of the day is to mention our sponsor, Pinter and Martin, who have um, really stepped up the support. They're going to be helping us do loads of things to grow the, um, the listener base and um, get us on iTunes, which many, many people have asked us for over the Pinter and Martin, just to remind you, is an independent publishing company specialising in pregnancy, birth and parenting, psychology, nutrition and yoga. You can find them at pinterandmartin.com and um, they've got lots of lovely books on at the moment. Their new stuff includes Sheila Kitzinger's autobiography, A Passion for Birth, um, the marvellous Bear Reality book. As you remember, we interviewed Laura, the um, author, editor, put her together of that wonderful book. Yeah. Um, and Mark's book. Wow. Look, that's yeah. there on their website, Mark. Is it Love and Birth. Yes. Yeah. Another one coming next year, but that's for another episode. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I, I'm looking forward to more people getting to, to hear the great interviews that we've had the privilege to do. You know, I, I hang with a lot of student midwives these days and I'm constantly talking about Sprogcast and always feel a little bit surprised that they haven't heard of it yet. So I'm looking forward to that growing of our listener base. Talking about that, episode nine, what is it? 400. listens. Wow. And loads more activity on Facebook. Because, you know, we always say it, don't we, Karen? Please get in touch with us on Facebook. Let us know who you want us to talk to. Let us know what subjects you want us to to engage with. Because, you know, um, the power of anything we do is always in the listening of it. Yeah, and we like to get the comments. We love to know that Maddie's still listening to each episode in the bath. Lindsay Dalton says she listens while she does her housework, a service we are very happy to provide. And she also suggested an interview with Sarah Wickham, which I think yeah, is a very that. good idea. And I think Maddie asked for Adela Stockton. So a couple of good ones to line up there. 
so you can get in contact with us at facebook.com slash sprogcast and at sprogcast on twitter okay so we're talking about hypnobirthing today we've got a few articles on that but the first one um i thought we might look at the um the potato one. Yeah, well that was i've got to be honest that was one that interested me uh, bizarrely largely because of my own weight loss journey Right, go on, tell us more. Been 27 stone at the peak of my weight. And uh, about a year ago, uh, my little boy sat on my belly and with wide open eyes, he asked me, Dad, were you born fat? And it kind of cut like a knife. And I went on a bit of a research journey thinking, right, well, I've tried to lose weight for so many years and haven't been able to do it, lost it, put it back on. And I discovered low carb eating. Mm-hmm. And uh, the shift that happens in the body when we reduce our carbohydrate intake to a certain level, you know, we start metabolizing fatty acid instead of glucose as a main energy source. And I thought, well, I'll give it a go and test it out in my own body. And it's been miraculous, Karen. I've gone from 56 inch waist to 44 inch waist. I've lost six stone at least. Um, you know, one of my goals, and it's very sad, was to buy clothes from Asda. <laughs> I know not many people have that kind of goal. But I've never been able to in living memory. Last week, my girlfriend brought me jeans for Master and T-shirts oh, for Master. Congratulations. And I, I was thrilled. I'm so happy for you. You know, and, and it's happened without me thinking about it. Now, after a week and a half, my energy levels changed, my ability to be focused changed, because there are lots of metabolic changes that happen when we reduce our uh, carbohydrate intake. And one of the suggestions in the literature is it can it can lead towards a cure of type 2 diabetes. So it was no surprise to me in this article, but it did seem to confirm my own experience of a reduction of carbohydrate intake. So the sample size of nearly 22,000 people. Decent size, so you're going to get good stats out of it. And um, it looks like the researchers did quite a lot of controlling for different factors. Um, this came out in various papers, and we've put a link on the Facebook page. So it was in the Telegraph and the Mirror. The yeah. study does sort of have a few little drawbacks, like um, it was self-reported data. So the women right. saying how often they ate potatoes. When did you last have a potato, Mark? A long time ago. I don't. I, I, yeah, they've been excluded right. pretty much from so my you, diet. So you can quite clearly state yeah, when you last had a potato. I don't think I can. I know that there are some potatoes in my kitchen, um, <laughs> but I don't remember exactly what. But um, also self-reported um, diabetes in pregnancy. So that's a little bit weak. Yeah. It was limited to white American women, which might be um, a group that you couldn't necessarily generalise to everybody because obviously there's different. Um, this is a, a condition that has cultural differences, isn't it? Incidence of gestational diabetes being higher in some ethnic groups. I, I think that the conclusion here is not stop eating potatoes. It's eat a varied diet. I, I know that when I went back to practice in the NHS after quite a gap, um, I noticed that did appear to me to be an increase of the so-called diagnosis of gestational diabetes and an increase of things like um, glucose tolerance tests at 28 weeks. Not routine, but because so many people fit the criteria to have one, there was more of them going on. So uh, there does seem to be an issue around uh, diabetes and pregnancy. Yeah, and I have um, talked to quite a number of women because I meet women antenatally um, giving breastfeeding support and they've often been told to express colostrum, which is an interesting subject in its own right. And they're, they're expecting big babies. They're always told to, to expect big babies. Yeah, I mean, we 
I mean, this leads in a way quite nicely into uh, hypnobirthing. And, and I'll tell you why the link is there in my mind is, is the minute you start to suggest a big baby, it's almost like a post hypnotic suggestion. And uh, it potentially leads uh, a woman on a sort of like a meaning making journey around uh, fear of having a large yeah, baby. I would agree with that. And we've talked about language use before. And even as long as far back as when I started training, we, we kind of knew that a scan late on in pregnancy was not very efficacious at predicting mm. weight. You know, they, I think it was about a pound and a half wrong either way as you got later on in the pregnancy. So I, I haven't read anything recently that suggests the gap in terms of predictive um, outcomes, but the gap is still there. So it, it's not an exact science. It's not the exact science that we imagine it is. You know, so when you have a late dating scan and they tell you what the baby's weight is predicted to be, in most people's minds, they're assuming that it's pretty... Mm. Correct. Well, yes, because somebody with authority has said that to you. And with a nice piece of shiny equipment. I had a woman say to me last night that her midwife had kind of felt around a bit and then told her that she was having a big baby because she was obviously the baby was about eight pounds now. Well, you know, I, I get what I get what you're saying about that in terms of palpation, you know, that um, it's obviously a very variable uh, skill. But, you know, I have worked with. Uh, midwives over the years who've been trained a long long time uh, whose ability to palpate the size of the baby and pretty much be very close to the weight has been well developed over the years right. do you know what I mean so, so what I'm saying in that is that I think that's the process of, unco of unconscious mm. expertise but because you feel so many abdomens over a 30-year career you're probably going to get skills of kind of estimating weight that are quite profound. What I'm trying to say is... Stop being so cynical, Karen. <laughs> what, what, no, I wouldn't say that. Having that skill and the way you communicate that information yes. are two yes. separate things. You know, so if, so if I palpate an abdomen, a woman's abdomen, and I perceive that the baby may well be, you know, on the larger size of average, I am not going to be communicating it in the way that yeah. that midwife did. Because of the impact that has on conscious and unconscious mind processes. Why would you say it? I suppose in the context of, of I use the word diagnosis loosely, in the context of a diagnosis of gestational mm -hmm. diabetes and a baby that professionals are perceiving might be larger macroscopic yeah. larger than the average there might be some considerations and thought uh, and information given around the time of induction of labor right. of, of labor so it does feed into the information giving around those choices um, but then we get into the whole debate that we have regularly about how informed consent is obtained and, and the kind of framework around how people receive information. You know, it's still apparent to me that women talk about being allowed to do things, you know, and, and in a culture of true informed consent, if there is such a thing, uh, those words like allowed and I must and I should, it should be dropping out of our vocabulary as we feel like we have a real choice to make. Yes. So I think we've got a way to go when it comes to informed choice yeah, giving. I've been hearing birth stories that make me cringe with the, the kind of choices that have been presented like if you don't push this baby out in the next five minutes we'll have to cut you that's not a choice no, it's that's ghastly. a threat and and you know and this doesn't justify that kind of abusive disgusting way of communicating 
Um, but you, when you think about the expulsive phase of birth and adrenaline, neuroadrenaline's impact on the expulsive phase at the end of the second stage, uh, that kind of fear that, that seems to naturally occur inside a woman as the baby uh, gets ready to be, you know, kind of expelled into the world, might well, in a perverse, paradoxical way, be be facilitated by that kind of threat, which doesn't make it right. And you're probably going to edit this out. Uh, but but it, it, it does lead to maybe the kind of practices like that that have evolved over the years because people have seen that work. And I'm not going to edit it out because I think it's really useful discussion. Um, but I'm also thinking people remember things or perceive things differently than how they were said. And I, with my cynic hat back on again, maybe a midwife didn't say that but a woman, a woman felt it. Uh, Maybe w midwife don't yeah. threaten women. Uh, well, I, I don't know whether to talk about my anecdotal experience, and I won't name anyone, but when I first qualified as a midwife, uh, I saw some, some behaviours that were pretty threatening and intimidating, without a doubt. Uh, I'm sure it's not widespread, um, but let's be honest. Um, uh, midwives, doulas, um, breastfeeding supporters yeah. are all people, right? I, I was really interested, again, cropping up uh, in our references about breastfeeding bonuses. Where did that come from? There was a study done a couple of years ago about yeah. offering a bonus of vouchers yeah. of some sort to women who breastfeed. And um, I just very briefly put it in because it was a prediction from NHS Choices about something that might become more common over the next right. year. I, I have I have some issues uh, about it in as much as it's often targeted to uh, in areas that are inverted commas, you know, lower socioeconomic groups, disadvantaged groups. Mm -hmm. And uh, I understand why people would want to increase breastfeeding rates across the board and particularly in the group I just mentioned, because, you know, a large portion of babies that are on the neonatal unit are, are from the, a disadvantaged group background. Right. And of course, if you increase breastfeeding rates across the board, but particularly in that group, you're improving health, health outcomes in that yeah. group. Uh, but I just don't know about the presupposition you know, which is let's incentivize people with money about something which is going to be intrinsically beneficial to the baby. Like, you know, somehow this group's more likely to be swayed by money. Now, of course, if you're struggling to feed your children and you're struggling to make ends meet, the incentive might be valuable to you. But I'm just not sure about the presuppositions of it. So how would you incentivize that group? I, you know, I, I think all learning is insight based. Mm -hmm. You know, that, that learning doesn't happen necessarily in the context of just knowledge transfer. You know, so I, I, I taught for, for quite a few years and I quickly realised that I don't transfer knowledge. Knowledge gets constructed inside the listener. So it's dependent upon an insight. I think the challenge is to create some kind of educational forum or process um, that begins to engender in the listener an insight about what you're saying. And then they have it. They own it. It's theirs. They constructed their insight themselves. And then the incentive is an inside out one. You know, it flows from an inside out source. The minute you, you, you have your emphasis on outside coercion or outside influence as the major force, mm -hmm. as soon as you take the outside influence away, 
um, any impact it was having is lost. That's really interesting, but I think we could use that to justify the bonuses because we're talking about a demographic that doesn't engage with antenatal classes or breastfeeding support and where breastfeeding rates are much lower. So when, when mothers have not been breastfed themselves and their friends don't breastfeed, they're unlikely to do it. So in the long term, if financial motivator increased the breastfeeding rates, then the next generation or the younger women in that group are going to see more breastfeeding and perhaps and the intrinsic more. knowledge can come that way so i can see that you know i can see that oh, you know when you say a group that don't engage i hear that an awful lot and it reminds me of uh, milton erickson uh, a therapist who used to say there's no such thing as resistant clients only uh, therapists that lack flexibility mm. and i think sometimes we talk about not engaging but we're not creative and flexible enough to find ways to to engage yeah and that's a big challenge isn't it yeah, ongoing one. Anyway, this month, Natalie has handed her strident student midwifery crown to Kate Mortimer, who chatted with Karen about fundraising for Mama Academy and her thoughts on hypnobirthing. Here it is. Uh, so my name's Kate Mortimer. I'm a third year student midwife at the University of Bradford. Hi, Kate. Thanks for talking to us today. So you know this episode's about hypnobirthing and I think you, you had some um, thoughts to add on that subject as well. Um, my first experience with hypnobirthing was probably about five or so years ago um, and it was a very unusual thing for somebody to come in and do on the labour ward that I was working on um, and people, the staff weren't very familiar with it and nobody knew quite how to respond to it. Um, and fast forwarding now, sort of five years down the line, it's completely different. The unit has um, regular courses that parents can come along and do. It's quite common for women to come into the unit and be doing it and everybody wants to be involved, whereas before it was kind of met with, you know, they didn't really know what it was. Um, so I think that that's really good and it's really turned things around. But it did make me think about whether the name, whether it would become more not mainstream but people would be more open to it if it was a different name do you think it makes it sound a little bit sort of woo <laughs> <laughs> a little bit i think i can see where a few years ago where people didn't really know anything about it didn't really understand what it was um i can see how that would that, you know it would made that progress but do people still think of it as something a bit out there yeah. um, whereas actually it's, it's a you know really big part of um modern sort of birthing techniques and things really and and if we had a name for it that was made it more accessible um that people would get on board with it a little bit more because i think there's so much more room for it still to be you know on labor ward and in, in not just at homes and in birthing units but for it to become a part of labor ward and, and in a very visible part that everybody wants to be involved in what do you think's brought about the change in attitude in the unit Ooh. women are a lot happier to come in and talk about what they want now um and I think that units are a lot more open to that, and that's definitely helped. So, so it seems like um, women are, are kind of communicating more about what they. Yeah, I think need. so. I think women are happier to come in and talk about what they want, and we're, and I think units are a lot better at uh, responding to that. And presumably, you've seen results. You, you've seen that it it's effective. And definitely, yeah. I think it definitely, uh, even if it doesn't change the 
you know the outcome that the women are looking for doesn't always result in a normal birth or a vaginal birth it's it's given them a sense of control and given them something about the birth that they want to yeah. have and I think that's really important I think that's why I'd like to see it really become a, a part of everybody's birth that's a really interesting point because it does seem like it's not the outcome that matters so much as the way women feel during the process. Yeah, absolutely. It's, I suppose that's why it comes back to the name as well. I'm thinking about sort of mindfulness and being back with, in touch with their bodies and in control of their bodies and their labour. Yeah. And to have a name that would kind of embrace that a bit more would maybe make it a bit more of a mainstream thing. There's a definitely a, a, a whole study day and just coming up with what alternative term you could use for it. Yeah, I can imagine there's loads of there's loads of possibilities without sort of get going down the same route. Even mindfulness, I think, for a lot of people, kind yeah, that. that's still a bit out there, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Whereas I think if you, if there was a way of sort of presenting hypnobirthing as as a way of literally simply encouraging women to get back to you know being with you know with themselves and in control and you know feeling the labour and the rhythms of labour in their body as a, as normal and being in touch and control. That would be that would be fantastic to see that for all women. Perhaps if it can gradually become more and more embedded in the culture, then there just wouldn't need to be a word for it. Absolutely. This Absolutely. is all getting very all well, isn't it? I know. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, is there anything else you'd like to say? or Did you want to speak about the charity stuff? Oh, yeah. Tell us about that as well. Um, okay, so um, last year when we set up the Midwifery Society, we felt quite strongly from the outset that we wanted to have um, a charity involvement because it was a good opportunity um, for us and, and for them, obviously. Um, and we held a vote for what people would like in terms of charities, and there were a number of bigger charities. Um, and the charity that we actually went for last year was Mummer Academy, who were, they're quite a small charity, but they are sort of getting going. Um, and I think this year will be a big turning point for them. Um, and this year, the, uh, the new society members have chosen another local charity, um, the Maternity Stream, who are part of the City Sanctuary. So they support asylum um, and refugee seeking women um, accessing maternity care. Right. So for us, it was a really good opportunity to, to bring those charities, you know, a bit of income, a bit of funding, um, but also to massively raise awareness of what the work that they do. Um, Mama Academy were founded by a lovely lady called Heidi, who set up charity following um, having a stillbirth. And she wanted to make um, a difference to the outcome of other mothers and babies and families. Um, so the charity was set up to promote positive pregnancies, encourage good relationships with um, between women and their midwives. Um, she talks about training that midwives can do in extra study days. Um, and they have a very sort of uh, prolific Facebook page that provides information to women as well. Um, our involvement with them uh, involved lots of fundraising last year, um, including jumping out of a plane for them. We did a skydive for them. That's so that was really exciting. But it also meant that we could make a bit of a difference. So one of the campaigns that Mummer Academy did was to have them these antenatal wallets that they wanted to um, trust to buy into to to give out to women antenatally to keep their notes in. And they've got lots of information on them about how to you know protect yourself in pregnancy and keep safe and healthy and well and when to contact your midwife. Um, so we helped to fund um, a pilot of one of those schemes at our local trust. So it was really, really good for us to to actually uh, have some sort of tangible, you know, difference to make. It was really encouraging for all the other students that were involved in the society and in our in our cohort. And would that be a sort of non-commercial alternative to a bounty? It would be. <laughs> what a good idea. 
the women could keep the notes in the ways that they've got all the access to information about safe foods to eat when you know um, reporting reduced movements so they're really they are really good wallets um so for us to be able to help put them out in trust was a was a massive thing to be able to do is that something that's going to be do you think picked up um on a wider basis yeah i think so that the charity involved with them um, nhs england um They've been working a lot with the Perinatal Institute for the uh, Made to Measure campaign for um, fundal height measurement and growth charts. So there's lots of, they're really going to pick up and get going this year, I think. So first we've had some involvement with them last year. But I think for any society and universities, it's, it's a really good way of um, supporting each other. Okay. Thank you very much for talking to us, Kate. It's been really interesting. Thank you. I will let you go. Okay. And have a rest and get over your laryngitis. Thank <laughs> you for talking to us. Right. Well, I, I was really interested uh, with the number of hypnobirthing articles that we posted. And uh, they, they all seem to be, correct me if I'm wrong, Karen, um, before uh, the SHIP trial had published its results. So tell me about the SHIP trial. It was an effort to measure uh, whether hypnobirthing intervention would have an impact on uh, analgesia choices or epidural in particular right. and there was a various process that involved I think it's two or three hours of hypnobirth training and CDs being given out and basically the trial found that it, that it had no impact on epidural rates but there was some impact on a woman's self-reporting about fear around birth and the trial's publication was long awaited. It's very difficult to measure the impact of an intervention when there are so many variables. Right. Do you know what I mean? So for example, the variables with hyp hypnosis are, you know, the the pre-existing story about hypnosis that the client has, uh, the skill base of the person doing the intervention, the skill base and experience, you know, all of those things add variables that are profound and, and quite far-reaching that's the first thing the second thing is is that the the course of hypnobirthing that the ship trial used bore no resemblance to anything that any other hypnobirthing program is doing at the moment you know most hypnobirthing programs are very extensive in terms of time that the um, practitioner spends with the woman um, ongoing support so hypnobirthing practitioners had already dismissed the ship trial really right well it seems like i'm just looking at some um, bits on the ship trial which i've put on facebook um that it doesn't make much difference to people's experience of pain but it reduces anxiety and fear but but their key measure was the use of epidural right and it didn't have any impact upon the use of epidural in the study i i just think it's one of the problems of research design you know, that if you focus on one particular outcome as a key measure, i.e. epidural, yeah. there's, a, I mean, I mean, when the SHIP trial was published, we had all the headlines, you know, hypnobirthing makes no difference in the context of birth. We, we see those kind of headlines that summarise research in a way that is sensational. Whereas, you know, some of the other findings about the impact upon birth uh, impact upon fear and anxiety are crucial. Yes. Um, one of the things that I put in was the Linda Geddes, and I know that's not recent, but she her response to hypnobirthing was, it doesn't reduce labour pain, therefore, um, what nonsense. Um, but, yeah. but that's on the basis that 
she's reading the philosophy of hypnobirthing being that if you banish fear, then you won't fear, feel any pain. Yeah. And it seems like maybe if, if that's what you're giving people as an expectation, then they might feel disappointed. I think you're right. Anything that has an, an impact upon a, a woman's ability to create meaning around the birth that's enhancing and enriching is an important intervention. I think when we focus on one outcome, we're missing the point. And it is one of the problems of, you know, randomised controlled trials and positivistic research methodology, in my opinion. So shall we listen to Danny? So I'm Danny Griffiths, and I am the co-founder of of the Wise Hippo Limited with Tamara Chanvini. Can you tell us a little bit about your background in, in the sense of what, what kind of qualifies you to, to write and author a programme like that? I would say that the first 30 years of my life, I felt like a round peg in a square hole. I just never, really from a very, very young age, I never really felt like I fitted. And, um, and then, although I didn't realise it at the time, at 29, something happened that was set to change the course of my life and basically what that was is that I got glandular fever um, and that was due to high stress in work and my personal life. My dad had died suddenly of cancer, Um, I had a failed marriage, I was studying for CIPD exams for a career in HR that I didn't want and um, having got so ill of course I didn't stop you know I'm a tough woman (laughs) so I didn't stop any of those things Um, and I proceeded to exist on soluble sulpidine for a year until my doctor said if I didn't stop work for a bit then I would make myself seriously ill my poor boss at the time she was awesome and when I told her that she literally put her foot up my backside and kicked me out the door she said off you go you know this is ridiculous I had no idea that you were so ill so I ended up being off work for about a month and during that time I had a lot of time to focus on my life you know in a way that I hadn't done before because life's so busy busy isn't it you just don't get that opportunity to really give yourself the time what I ended up doing was getting a copy of Floodlight which was a magazine full of courses I, I noticed that they have um they have a website now but back then there was no sort of sitting on the sofa surfing through your your phone on the internet so it was literally flicking through pages looking for something I was just looking for something because I knew I wasn't happy and I wasn't uh, content in what I was doing and I happened upon an ad for an introductory hypnotherapy weekend and I thought oh that's interesting normally I would just go oh yeah you know that that's interesting but I can't do that but I found myself picking it's almost an out-of-body experience I found myself picking up the phone and talking to the the lady at the other end and booking on this weekend and I um I found when I was there at that weekend that something just felt right and I always say if it feels right it is right yeah and so I booked on the full hypnotherapy and counseling course which ran every other weekend for a year and I can honestly say that it was the best year of my life and that's kind of I guess it didn't start my passion with understanding the mind when I looked back over other things that I'd done over the years that passion was always there but I didn't know what it was you know I don't know if yeah. you had that before but yeah, you yeah. kind of reflect back and you think oh this has always been in my life but yeah. I hadn't really recognized it before and it was through that course that I finally felt like a round peg in a round hole so I think that that kind of passion that I have 
Um, when you say, why am I qualified to write something like this? I'm not your typical birthy person. I remember one of our instructors the other day, she wrote, oh, us birth people, we like to drink tea, eat cake and talk birth. Now, I know if any of our instructors, well, most of our instructors, they got their hands on you, Mark, to be able to do that, they would be talking up birth like there was no tomorrow. But what have we been chatting about, you and I? Because obviously one of your other passions, like me, is understanding the mind. Oh, absolutely. That is my passion. And that's what I really kind of weave through the programme. You know, um, the practice that the couples do is very much practice in their everyday lives. It is about making change in their everyday lives. So when they come to using the tools for birth, not about saying, let's put this in a box and use this for birth. It's tools that they use in their everyday life. So they don't have to find time to practice because they're tools for everyday life. So that's really kind of where I come from. I just happen to stick birth on the top of it. Well, that sounds intriguing to me because it, it means potentially the, the program that you put together is going to go on serving uh, this couple for the rest of their lives. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And um, I mentioned briefly, I know we're not really talking about today, but I mentioned briefly that I've al- already written as well um, a Bond with Baby program. Now, that actually starts that process. It's an early pregnancy uh, pr- uh, program. And it starts that process by understanding emotions, because that's a massive passion of mine, that emotions aren't something that um, are taught in a useful way to us when we're growing up. So, But maybe you'll invite me back another time to talk about oh, prenatal bonding. Oh, we certainly will. <laughs> we, we certainly will. So did, did you have uh, your own uh, hypnotherapy practice before you moved into focusing on birth? Hypnobirthing kind of found me. I think like a lot of people they go on a course like a hypnotherapy course and they have these big dreams of a new way of life and then they go back to the day job don't they and I did that I did that for a number of years but I never let go of my dream to work as a hypnotherapist and what I used to do is anyone who was interested I'm sure I uh, used to bore a lot of them but anyone who was interested in what I was doing and then um, said, you know, can you do something for me? I would help them. You know, I wasn't working at that time, but I would help friends, colleagues, families, anything really, just to be doing it because I really bought into the fact that if I was doing it, then it would help create what I wanted. Then what happened was I started noticing that pregnant women were telling me they were scared of birth. And it was something really alien to me because I grew up, being told by my mum that I shot out in four hours. She had me at home with my brother asleep upstairs. My sister, she had at home with my brother and I asleep upstairs. And so the only negative thing I remember learning about birth as a teenager was an older friend telling me that she'd pooed. And I was horrified, absolutely horrified. So that was the only negative I knew about birth. So in terms of uh, what I did as a hypnotherapist, I never really got into that standard let's do phobias, let's do smoke cessation, things like that. I think, again, without even meaning for it to do, it started off with how are we feeling and how can we make positive change with that? And as I say, the the birth thing just kind of found me and I used my knowledge about understanding the mind to kind of work with, with women to help change their fears to 
um, to have more positive birth experiences. And actually, my sister was my first case study client um, with hypnobirthing. And her, um, her best friend, who's now one of our wise hippo instructors, she was my second. So actually, um, kind of my first introduction to working, actually properly working with pregnant women was, was again, through family and friends, which was lovely. It wasn't until I had my daughter, Evan, that things really kind of kicked off for me. Because, again, I was still doing the day job. But what it hadn't yet shown me that I could stop working and, and start this new business. But um, when I had Evan, I basically said to my husband, I'm not going back to work. <laughs> yeah, I bet that thrilled him, Danny. I think he expected it to be fair. And he's wonderful. My husband has supported me. I um, I set up Tums to Mums, which was my original hypnobirthing business. I set that up when I first told him I wasn't going back to work. And um, just that was striving. I said, by the way, I don't want to do that anymore. I want to launch something new, <laughs> which was the Wise Hippo. So he's very supportive, thankfully, and I think he knew that I would never be able to leave her to go back to work. Even after a year, it just would have felt too hard for me. So that was the point, you know, that was the catalyst for me to say, well, I'm not going back to work. I've always worked. I like to earn my own money. So this is the time, you know, I've got my, the backing of my husband. Basically, he was paying all the bills and don't tell him, but now I've got more money, I still let him pay all the bills. <laughs> <laughs> my birth actually really kicked off my hypnobirthing career because I had Evan at home and the midwife who was at my birth, she was so amazed that she left my house texting and phoning every other midwife she knew. She said to me that after 30 years of working as a midwife, that seeing my birth had restored her faith in midwifery. Wow. Oh, God, that's, that's lovely. Isn't, isn't that lovely? Yeah. Absolutely wonderful. And I hadn't, I hadn't met her before um, I went into labour. And um, she was the most special, special woman in, in my life. You know, absolutely amazing. She did exactly what you want a midwife to do. She just stood back. She was just there as a really kind of comforting presence. You know, she, um, I had Evan an hour and 20 minutes after she arrived. And um, I think one of the key moments in my mind was I was, uh, I got into the pool only about, I think about 10, 15 minutes before Evan was born. I remember the last three surges, which as you know, we call contraction surges with hypnobirthing. Um, the, the last three surges, I felt her head move down. And then uh, the second one, her head came out. And then it felt like, that's it. I'm never going to have another surgery <laughs> ever. Her head was out. <laughs> and I'd done a lot of reading about water births. I knew she was fine. I knew, you know, as long as she hadn't come up, she wasn't breathing. But um, I remember looking over, and it was two minutes, actually, I found that afterwards, two minutes um, that we waited. And I remember looking up to my midwife and saying, is she okay? Now, I knew the answer. I knew she was okay, but I just wanted her. And that connection I had with my midwife at that moment, I can feel myself getting emotional Me now. too, God, me too. Absolutely beautiful. <laughs> yeah, it was absolutely beautiful. So, you know, you, you can imagine she did wonders yeah. for my reputation. And that's really where it grew from. I, I think I'm, I'm feeling emotional because what, what you describe is that just difficult to describe dance that happens when a, mi a midwife is being with a woman as a yeah. woman's expressing you know, her power to give birth. It's not, yeah. it's, not, it's not like the woman necessarily needs the midwife, but the midwife adds something when she's able just to Definitely. be there, Definitely. be there. Yeah, just, you can't explain that. No. I, um, 
I think the thing that fascinates me as well is how a perfect stranger can be so special to you so quickly. Yeah. I remember when the door rang. I didn't have any um, clothes on because I was so hot. And I remember when the door rang, I thought, oh, I better put something on. This stranger's about to come into my house. And I had the flimsiest of night dresses. And I put that on. And within minutes, I thought, I can't stand this material on my body. Who cares? <laughs> I just took it off. So there I am. And, you know, I'm five foot ten. And I was big um, uh, when I was pregnant. And, I was like, and this midwife, she's quite tiny. And there's this great big naked woman. <laughs> in front of her but I didn't care of course she didn't care yeah and uh, it's amazing it's isn't beautiful. it beautiful yeah it's um, beautiful you know this perfect stranger that can be so special for you but yeah. obviously the right midwife you know thankfully I think most uh, well most midwives I've met um are like that I know I hear other stories sometimes but um I, I mean every week I hear stories that are not particularly positive but you know the that kind of ability to be present uh, and almost transparent to a woman, you know, is is very moving. And I, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. To... yeah. That's a good word, actually, Mark, because it's like she was there, but she wasn't there. Yeah, it's weird. Yeah, but and, yeah. and you can't. I don't think you can describe it. And right. um, do you know? I I want to be as frank as possible. Yeah. Uh, you know, I sometimes tease hypnobirthers because I work with a lot of them, <laughs> and I say, "Which tribe are you in?" <laughs> you know, because sometimes the uh, the landscape of hypnobirthing is is quite defined in terms of the tribes. Right. Uh, that's only my opinion, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so what would you say is the core philosophy of of Wise Hippo, and what what makes it different? It's interesting um, that you start this with the hypnobirthing tribes because actually, I'd say to our instructors. Don't say that you teach hypnobirthing. Say that you teach the Wise Hippo Birthing Program because then people know who you are. I'm probably putting myself out there by saying this, but I firmly believe that Marie Mongan made the term hypnobirthing what it is and that it should have been left with her. Right. And actually, um, I say that for good reason because I feel that a lot of people don't know the difference. Now, I can't tell you the difference because I know the Monga method from, from three years ago. Yeah. But I don't know it today. I don't know any other method. I can only know what I've got, what I've written. But I think for a lot of women, and I see this because um, I've been admin on a hypnobirth board on Baby Centre Forum for years now. And, um, you know, they say hypnobirthing and they see it as all the same thing. Right. So actually, I say to our instructors, Say that you teach the Wise Hippo Birthing Program. It is a program, an antenatal education program, that includes hypnosis. People have an idea of what they think hypnobirthing is. So, for example, the I would say the unique thing about the Wise Hippo, and this is something that's very, very dear to my heart, is the right birth on the day. Now, a lot of um, hypnobirthing programs, they are seen to be about a natural birth without drugs. But actually, for me, it's about a woman saying, this is what I want for my birth and for someone to support her with that, whatever that is. So that's first and foremost what's really important to me, that women don't think, I can't do a program like this because I want to have my epidural, you know. Actually, she may be so frightened that she ends up having a horrific birth with that epidural or she could come on a program like this and she can learn to feel confident about her body, about her birth choices. And whether or not she has the epidural is irrelevant. 
she's had a positive birth experience. So for me, that's first and foremost what's really, really important. But of course, on the other side of that, because we do have you know a lot of our clients um, coming, I would say the majority coming because they do want that vaginal birth without drugs. No, I get so that. on the other side of that, there's also the fact that life doesn't always go the way you want it to. So what we do is make sure that women focus on the birth they want, but have the emotional flexibility to appreciate when it had to to change. Because Mark, when at um, our recent Wise Hippo pod meet that you spoke at, you said that um, every woman has the right birth on the day because it's the birth that she had. Now, I know what you meant by that, but actually many women don't feel like they had the right birth on the day because they feel like decisions were made outside of their control. So they actually feel like they were dragged along in a birth that didn't feel right for them. So obviously that's really sad. And for someone as myself, passionate, I think most um, most people in this business are passionately wanting women to have a positive experience. But I think by focusing on birth in a certain way, it can have an adverse effect if it doesn't work out like that. And unfortunately, I've seen this a lot, you know, on this baby centre forum that, I, that I'm on. I've seen a lot of women say, um, I failed at hypnobirthing. I feel angry at hypnobirthing. I feel guilty because I had an epidural, all things like this. And for me, I, I really, this happened quite a few years ago, and I really questioned why they were saying this, because my clients were not saying this to me. And I didn't have them all having perfect births. So I really explored what it was that I was doing with my clients. And I put this into the Wise Hippo because, of course, we teach them to question if the medical caregivers suggest that they need to deviate away from their plan. But at the same time, sometimes that deviation is the absolutely right thing to do. And they want to be able to feel good about that and to know that it's absolutely the right way for them to go. So by setting them up in the first place for the right birth on the day, as long as they have been part of that decision-making process, they know they've had the right birth on the day. They can feel disappointed if they don't get the dream birth they wanted, but to know that they had the right birth on the day makes all the difference between feeling like they succeeded no matter what happened during their birth and feeling like a failure if it doesn't go the way they want. You know, so this is a really, really, I think, unique way of looking at birth that we have with the wise hippo. Yeah, I think I, I think it's very powerful, Danny, because behind me saying, you know, the right birth on the day because it's the birth you had, I, I noticed that most of the suffering in my own life is, is where something happens and there's a conflict between what's happening and the story I'm telling myself about what's happening. Yeah. You know, there's a there's a tension between what is going on and the story I'm in a process of either creating consciously or unconsciously about that story. You know, yeah. so like two women, I've observed it many times, two women have births that are very similar to each other to the outside watcher, right? And mm. but one woman experiences that inside a story of trauma and the mm. other woman experiences that inside a story of enrichment. And yeah. the, the variable is the story that's being created consciously and unconsciously. Well, what do you say to those folk that says, oh, come on, Danny. The SHIP trial has pretty much proven that hypnobirthing or any type of hypno preparation doesn't work. You know, as well as I do, that any kind of research in the area of hypnosis, 
or actually any kind of training is difficult because you can't create a controlled environment. You know, coming back to the stories, every individual is different and we bring, they bring their own antenatal um, education ideas, you know, what they expect from that, unique beliefs, hopes, expectations, level of commitment to what they're doing. You know, this all actually impacts on the outcome. So it's really hard to actually to do research. Not to mention the skill of the person delivering the programme. I, I, I know you're very clear about um, your practitioners following the program, and I, yeah. I really under, I do understand that because you know the quality of the training is a key variable. Actually, what um, the ship trial was hoping to prove was that hypnosis could reduce the use of the epidural. Well, all they proved was that the way they prepared women for birth using hypnosis didn't reduce the use of the epidural. Yeah, but they, they, it was a thorough hypnosis program, wasn't it? Yeah, but it was different. What I'm saying is that all they proved is the way that they did it. When we announced our stats last year, um, we showed that those who responded, only 9% used the epidural. But as I mentioned before, we don't focus on a natural birth without drugs. We want every woman to have the right birth on the day. So if a woman comes to us, as I was saying earlier, frightened, so she's planning a C-section, but she manages to overcome that fear sufficiently to have a vaginal birth, but she uses the epidural, is that a failure? And, you know, one of my favourite birth stories is of a client who did want a vaginal birth without drugs. That's what she was hoping for. But during her labour... Life threw her a number of shitty curveballs and it got to the point where she was being told that she was most likely going to have to have a C-section. And what she told me is that she had an epidural and that gave her the space to refocus and she did end up birthing vaginally. And, you know, the joy on that client's face said it all. And I'll say again, was she a failure? Without a doubt not. Absolutely not. But, you know, Mark... It doesn't matter what stats actually tell you. Coming back to that control, we all bring different things to our antenatal education. So I always say, for every one person you've met who say they succeeded with the Wise Hippo Birthing Program, you've met one person who succeeded with the Wise Hippo Birthing Program because, you know, their success doesn't mean someone else's success. And every woman has to make their own journey and will choose to use what she learns in a way that is right for her. All we're responsible for is to give women and their partners the tools that will empower them for the right birth on the day. And, you know, with those stats, 100% of those who completed our birth outcome survey said that they achieved that. And I think those women will tell you that what we do most definitely works. That's brilliant. I mean, it leads me on to my next question, Danny. If, if, if we kind of go forward in time to five years and you're looking back from the point of view of five years' time, uh, what, what's going to be different about Wise Hippo? For me, uh, accessibility is a big goal. And that is in terms of location and cost. So in terms of location, we're growing all the time. We already have around 250 instructors across a number of different countries. This year, we've been invited to carry out instructor training in Dubai and Belgium. We've also been asked about training in Australia, Canada and America. And we're looking into a feasible way that we can do that. We've been asked to translate the Wise Hippo into French and German. So for me, I'd like to see the Wise Hippo being provided in as many countries as possible 
but in a way that we can ensure good quality of service, both for our pregnant clients and our instructors. I don't want it to be watered down. I don't want it to be affected. So, yes, in five years' time, I'd love to have seen that growth massively, you know, throughout the world. Well, birth world domination, that's what Yay. I love it. I love it. Because um, I know it makes a difference, you know. I know the um, philosophy of the right birth on the day really makes a difference. But in terms of costs, um, in the UK, we see the NHS being a big part of that. We already have a number of hospitals teaching the Wise Hippo Birthing Programme, which has come about purely because our midwife instructors have pushed for it to be introduced, which is phenomenal, absolutely amazing. And at our last instructor training, a high percentage of trainees were, were midwives. And some of them said they were there because they want to introduce the Wise Hippo into their hospitals. Every single one of them said that they chose the Wise Hippo because of the right birth on the day approach and you know we are really excited Mark because only this week we've been asked to train 28 midwives for a trust who have already been teaching the wise hippo in one of their hospitals and of course what's amazing about this is that with free classes being provided by the NHS we can reach those couples who perhaps can't afford classes and you know our instructors they do they offer discounts and payment plans but you know you can't offer that widely enough so in terms of that accessibility so that cost isn't a barrier, the more the NHS support us. And as I say, we're getting a lot of midwives saying they absolutely love this approach to the, the right birth on the day. You know, that could make my dream come true. To be able to share this kind of approach to birthing much more widely, I believe would make a massive difference to a lot of women and I know the NHS like to think about saving money. I think it would save them money too, although the approach isn't about avoiding the use of drugs. It happens naturally. We see that in our, in our stats. You know, less than 4% of um, people are using other types of drugs. And when we look at our stats overall, just um, around the 50% mark have used no, dr no drugs at all. Right. And if you add to that the findings of confidential in inquiry into maternal deaths and the issues it raise around postnatal depression and PTSD, um, which has a big cost in terms of life and suffering, yeah. but also in terms of money. So, you know, so people having a chance to engage with, with your program potentially are reducing the risks of ongoing mental health issues. Yes, I mean, obviously, I've got no stats to prove that. But I think if you're saying I had the right birth on the day, that's going to really lessen the, it's certainly going to lessen the possibility of trauma. And of course, it's helping them as new mothers as well, isn't it? You know, these tools, as I say, they're not just for birth. And I know a lot of other programs will say this, but with these tools, I have introduced a way that they practice them through their everyday lives. It becomes second nature for them. So it's tools they do instinctively use for um, for their lives and for those early weeks with their babies as well. Yeah, without a doubt. And in my journey, you know, when my wife was first diagnosed with cancer many, many, many years ago, and I had a breakdown and and uh, was medicated and deep depression and all that kind of stuff, it was the awareness that I could alter my state of consciousness. Uh, through hypnosis initially and through NLP and various other means. Uh, it's the reason I'm here, frankly. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, thank you very, very much for taking the time today, Danny. I do oh, appreciate thanks, it. Mark. And thanks, Mark. Uh, thanks for I'm, having me. I'm, I'm glad we got you before you're completely global. <laughs> <laughs> you can always get me, Mark. <laughs>
I, I just want I want to say something about my journey in hypnotherapy and all that kind of stuff because when my wife was first diagnosed with cancer many many years ago I was unwell we've spoken about it before I was depressed I had antidepressants and one of the the ways out of that kind of deeply depressing story was realizing that my state of consciousness can be altered and changed and that that can be at my volition I can have I can willfully change my um, awareness and I use self-hypnosis and I got into hypnotherapy and I got into NLP because I realized that there was more choice about the stories I was living in than I was currently experiencing. And, and that's why I'm still a raving advocate of, of uh, anything that enables us to have more choice about the state of consciousness we are in at any given moment. Now it's time for our endorsements. Mark, what are you endorsing this month? Me? I, I'm endorsing a book. Um, it's an old book. It's written by uh, Steve, Stephen Heller and Terry Steele. It's called Monsters and Magical Sticks. Uh, and the subtitle is There's No Such Thing as Hypnosis. Right. Uh, it's a fabulous book about how uh, having an insight into how we frame our you know our conscious experience of the world can be transformational it's a thoroughly good read you'd be buying it on amazon secondhand at about three quid i'm, I'm guessing and for those of you interested in hypnosis interested in being creative around how you experience the world this is a must read used on amazon seven pound 92 oh a little bit more expensive <laughs> but a great book a classic and it uh, it, it totally uh, informs not just our ability to shift our own way of seeing the world and making meaning but it it, it challenges the way we use language and how we can kind of um, use language in such a way as to release the resources in other people so uh, worth a read cool that sounds really interesting I've put that on Facebook for us yeah, I mean, I'm having a look at page 96 and the heading is pain as a pattern. You know, fascinating, you know, because pain is, is, you know, we superimpose uh, a category or an experience frame upon our experience of pain. Because if you track pain back to its source, it, it's sensations in the body. Right. That we then label in a certain way. So, for example, we've all cut our finger with with paper, right? We didn't realize we'd done it until we looked and saw it and then it became painful. Mm. So there's a modulation that goes on in the context of setting a frame, yeah. making meaning about the sensations in the body. And this book explores all that wonderful stuff, I think, directly um, applicable uh, to pregnancy and birth without a doubt. But broader than that will affect your whole life. Okay, so that's Monsters and Magical Sticks, or There's No Such Thing as Hypnosis. And it's on our Facebook page. My endorsement, I've got two, is that all right? Yeah, all right. <laughs> well, the first one is the one I was originally going to do, which is um, all over Twitter, if you're in the right circles, hashtag my NCT story. As you know, I work for NCT, though I do not represent or speak for them. Um, she's collecting <laughs> people's stories with this hashtag about kind of what difference doing an nct course made to their lives and the 
people. It's been mostly to start off with, I think, people who work for NCT, but kind of gradually the pool is widening and more and more people are putting, you know, like I, I did right. the antenatal course, I made the friends. Um, for me, it was then I had a baby and I got breastfeeding support and I trained as a breastfeeding counsellor and a whole new world opened up for me. So that was my NCT story, but that, it's out there. Hashtag my NCT story. And... Um, yeah, sounds good. Also, I'm running the Reading Half Marathon on the 3rd of April and I want sponsorship. Wow. Are you going to put the sponsor link on the page? I've already done it. Brilliant. What, what are you running that for then? Um, I'm raising money to do local breastfeeding peer supporter training. Oh, rock and roll. That's brilliant. Um, I've never run a half marathon. I've never run further than seven and a half miles and that was two years ago. So, yeah. Well, in April. I, the, the fact that you can run that far you know i had athletes foot once and that's the closest i've got to being that fit <laughs> i'm not convinced yet that i can run that far <laughs> you can have you, so have, everyone you, says. Have, have you been able to run for half an hour without stopping yet oh god yeah yeah there you go it's a piece of cake so uh, it's going to take me a lot more than half an hour to run 13.1 miles i know it's, but the key i i once did a preparation for a marathon that i never did um but the key to preparation preparing to run that length of time was very key step was being out run for 30 minutes without stopping yeah yeah i can i've got that one yeah you, you'll do that we shall well, see well i hope people hurry to the site and contribute some money to that because that's great thank you so is there anything else we want to talk about today no i think that's it you know i think that's all we've got time for today but the good news is that we've committed to publishing an episode on the 25th of each month so you now have something to look forward to. Do please keep talking to us on Facebook and Twitter. I can't say it enough. We want to hear from you. Your engagement is absolutely crucial to everything we do. So please get in touch. And thanks for listening. And um, bye. Bye from me. You've been listening to Sprogcast with Mark Harris and Karen Hall. Sprogcast is supported by Pinter and Martin. For all your pregnancy, birth, breastfeeding and parenting reading, check out pinterandmartin.com and enter the code SPROGCAST for an additional 10% off. Sprogcast is produced by Karen Hall with technical assistance by Pete Hall and our branding is provided by Nick Hilditch.